Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a message to Harry Manback. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. I just poured another pint of Day Glow Vibes by the hardworking folks over at Mast Landing Brewing Company. This is a double dry hopped, double India pale ale brewed with four different kinds of hops. Garage grade three and a half bottle caps out of five. And let's give a big cheers to our friends for helping us out with this week's beer run. Yeah, first up we have John O'Leary from Bethel Park, Pennsylvania. And last but certainly not least, we have Jordan Nicholson from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Everyone we mentioned, they helped us out with this week's beer fund by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and clicking on that pint glass. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs and you want to check out our bonus content off the record, you can do so through the Apple Podcast app. Just hit subscribe or now we are officially available. We have partnered with Patreon. So go over to Patreon and search True Crime Garage and check out Off the Record on Patreon. Thank you so much for the love and the support and keeping the lights on. Onward and upward. Cheers, mates. All right, everybody. Gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. What if it's you? There's some there's some interaction and and maybe I do need to go back and re-listen to to Ciro because there's there's the weird interaction when they're uh when they're in court together where Adnan says something to Jay. He calls him pathetic. I, yeah, I thought that was to me that was a little telling, right? When I'm sitting there in in my my uh armchair sleuth action, right in the armchair, right? And I'm I'm trying to sleuth this thing out. I've already come to the conclusion based off every, everything I reviewed to that point that that it's one of three scenarios, Adnan, Jay, or Adnan and Jay. And that that little interaction to me, I thought was rather telling. I thought it, it tipped the scales a little bit for me to, to believe that it was Adnan. Um, and, 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 you know, look, Jay is not, he's certainly not trustworthy. Uh, so you always have that in the back of your mind, but 
and, and in some weird way, Adnan doing it is Jay's alibi. But that that little that little exchange right there, one I thought was a little telling. It tipped the scales toward Adnan for me. And then there was something which I can't recall at the moment to do with gloves. That you know that they some statement given about gloves that I I felt that it was a statement that Jay gave and that that it had stuck and and it carried so much weight with me that that I do need to. I believe that I need to go back and review that for, for me, the timeline, one spot that I thought was incredibly interesting was this anonymous phone call that comes in shortly after Heyman Lee's body is discovered in Lincoln park. And so her body's discovered on February 9th. And of course there's, there's some period of time that goes by before, before the body is identified. But on February 12th, the Baltimore City Police Homicide Division receive a, an anonymous phone call suggesting that the investigators should focus on Adnan. Now, one, do I have that right? And two, c- could you guys expand on that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, I'm, I'm <clears throat> give me a moment. I'm actually trying to pull up the actual timeline to make sure that's right. But so we talked about a little bit earlier that you know, they focused on Adnan from the beginning and this was all about railroading him and this sort of idea about this case. And that's what you hear from some people. And it seems like it's actually pretty clear that they didn't really focus on Adnan until this phone call you're talking about. And there was this, and I, and I got to tell you, it is one of those, it is one of those, you got to be careful with rabbit holes in this case. Because if you let yourself get sucked down into rabbit holes, you'll be lost forever. And this is one of those that I would love to know who called, right? It's February 12th is when that call comes in. The same day, by the way, that Baltimore has 15 police officers who spend the entire day canvassing Baltimore looking for that car. You know, they're looking for that car, trying to find what they think is going to be a vehicle that's going to have a lot of evidence in it. So... This phone call comes in to them on February 12th. It's a few days after Hayes' body has been found. And yeah, it, it's an anonymous caller. The officer describes them as an Asian male in his notes. When they testify about it at trial, he actually says he, he, he meant Indian, which is interesting because I think when you, most people, when they hear Asian, they're thinking more sort of Japanese, Chinese, something along those lines. Indian is closer to Pakistani, which is. Adnan's racial background. And it makes you wonder, is this someone who knows Adnan? Is it someone from the mosque? Is it someone that he might've been friends with? A lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who that is. One thing they absolutely knew was this Yasser Ali guy. They say, you need to talk to him because he's going to be able to tell you. And the police actually, I think they meet him at a, at a pizza hut or something (laughs) to talk through with it. And Yasser's like, yeah, you know, it it was, we talked about that. He said if he ever, you know, killed a girlfriend, he would drive her car into a lake or something like that, which is such a strange, the whole, the whole interaction is strange. The, the fact of the anonymous call, the fact the anonymous caller then calls back. So he calls, says that, you know, Adnan and Hay had had sex in Lincoln Park in the past, which I kind of doubt because Lincoln Park, I don't think is the kind of place that you, but maybe it is. I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to speak for what goes on in Lincoln Park. Um, and he says the thing about driving the car into the lake. And then he calls back and says, you should talk to Yasser Ali. And when they talk to Yasser, Yasser's like, kind of had a conversation like that, but not exactly. So whoever it was kind of knew enough to be dangerous, but maybe didn't know a lot. And like I said, it's a rabbit hole you can go down, but I don't think you're going to find any answers to it. But knew enough to send police in the right direction of talking to somebody that that does say yes, we had some kind of bizarre conversation at one point in our friendship, and it sounds like it's it's probably well before the fact that that she's eventually killed. But that he says something to the effect: if I ever killed someone, or if I ever killed a girlfriend, I would dispose of her of the vehicle in this manner. And what's interesting about it is it really is, that is what sets him off on Adnan. So that happens, you know, they get this weird phone call that I, that's on the 12th. On the 15th, they're talking to 
this guy at the Pizza Hut, right? The next day, they pull Adnan's cell phone records. And it's when they pull his cell phone records and they start looking at the phone calls and they see a call that comes up over and over again. And it's Jen Pusateri. And then they go talk to Jen and Jen says, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And they're like, they leave. And in their notes, if you read the notes, they're like, spoke to Jen Pusateri. She doesn't have anything to say. And then the next day, Jen shows up with her lawyer and her mother and tells them the story that is going to become the story that we hear over and over and over again. Yeah. I've never had a conversation with a friend about killing a girlfriend. Uh, I have had several conversations about killing a co-host. No well, comment. The, the, the bizarreness. The, you know, you're being recorded. The really right? bizarre part of that, too, that like that m- makes you believe that that conversation took place. One. Yeah, we have Yasser saying that, yes, that conversation happened. But let's set that aside for a second. It's the added detail of not just like, oh, we're having this bizarre conversation of killing somebody. What if? But oh, by the way, this is how I would dispose of their vehicle. You know, it's that added detail that that makes it just ring true. And of 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 course, you got to investigate this guy as soon as you learn this detail. I mean, it would be an incredible mistake not to. And it's very possible that he, you know, he was just talking a big game. It's very possible. What I think is really important here is that they didn't know the police didn't know Adnan's cell phone number or to pull his cell phone records before this interaction. And so we're talking about what, mid-February at this point, it's, you know, this cuts against the narrative that the police, you know, knew she was missing and immediately zeroed in on Adnan as the main suspect. By all accounts, they weren't looking at him really with any seriousness up until this point. Otherwise, they would have probably found some way to subpoena his records much earlier on. Well, and there's a lot of indicators, too, to suggest that there was not a whole lot of an investigating going on until her body's found. Like, it, I think that's it, right. It is a concern. They're aware that she is air quotes missing. She may have gone to California or whatever, but there does not appear from where I'm sitting to, to, to a lot of evidence that suggests that there was any kind of hardcore investigation going on to find her. And then as you guys said earlier, it's the, it's, it's the f- the discovery of her body of her remains that now 180 degrees flips this investigation and now the importance of finding her vehicle and i think baltimore treated this like they treat a lot of stuff you know they've got way too many murders to investigate and way too many probably actual abductions to investigate to worry about some 18 year old girl who decided to go off you know, to California or something. I think they, they really, and I don't want to be, you know, we talk about this so much when police do this, when, when they, the initial call comes in and they don't take it seriously. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, four weeks later, you have a murder on your hands. And it's really easy to be very critical of the police and say, what in the world were you guys doing? Why didn't you look into this from the very beginning? But it seems like that's the way the Baltimore police kind of approached it. And I think you're right until she until they found her body, that's when it really starts to ramp up. And you see that. And you see that with all the searches for the cars, sending out the police, the bolos, requesting a helicopter, you know, all these efforts to find that car. Because I think they realized if we find the car, we might be able to figure this out. The car is going to be the key. And when eventually they would find it when Jay led them to it. Well, and they're, they're hoping to find clear evidence of who put that car there. They, they don't believe that their victim was abducted there. They don't believe that their victim um, was abducted elsewhere. You know, they, they believe that that car is, is disposed of after the body disposal. And they're hoping that what they can find in that vehicle will lead them to the killer, to the same person that put the body in the park. And when, when they don't get that, and, and then there's also the complication of, you're going to find evidence inside of that vehicle that will suggest that Adnan Syed was in that vehicle. But of course we would have expected to find, we should expect to find evidence that he's been in that vehicle at some point um, because it's because he was um, and on days when she wasn't killed. Um, so yeah, there exactly that. But, but what I see too, one thing that I, that I always thought um, and one thing I try to point out, and I don't know that it's always 
taken the way that it's supposed to, or even digested properly is that there is a, there is a strong psychology in trying to conceal a body. And this is an investigation that really highlights that, that psychology of, of typically the more effort that is taken to conceal a body usually means the closer, the perp, the closer connection between victor victim and perpetrator. And here in, and the reason why is because until there is a body found in most cases, there is not that level of investigation. And here, this clearly points all of that out that someone took the efforts to, to partially bury or, or conceal this body to the best of their ability on that day at that night. And it took four weeks to find her. And then what happens immediately once she's found the, now we have an actual investigation. Now we have a hardcore investigation. So the, the, the closer the perp is to the victim, the more vested invested they are in the idea of if they never find this person, I probably don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, that's exactly right. We see that. Unfortunately, if the victim has a relationship with uh, the perpetrator, there is some attempt to cover the body. Because, you know, if this is a random attack, some random passerby, let's say her car broke down and, you know, some ne'er-do-well happens upon her and they decide to kill her. Why not? Why stick around and risk getting caught with a dead body? It's going to take time to drag her body into the woods, even though it's not very far into the woods, to you know, stay there, dig a hole to put her body in there, probably leaving evidence of you behind um, if, if you didn't know this person, because a random attacker is really difficult to find. But if you're going to take the risk of covering someone up, it's likely that you know there could be ties to you, especially if you're an ex-boyfriend or have any sort of relationship with her. There are going to be people who are populated on the suspect list by mere by mere relation to her. Right. Usually family members or anyone close to the the two close to the victim will be on an initial suspect list who has to be cleared by the police. And so it makes sense psychology wise to cover up that body. And also there's this strange psychology, even if you are the person who is the perpetrator, that it's difficult to look at someone, you know, that you've had a relationship with in this in this instance, a very close relationship, a love relationship, in fact, um, of seeing that person even if you have very, you know, hatred feelings toward them, to leave them exposed and open to the elements when they are dead. And so that's a that's a great point to raise here, that if it were a random attacker, it, it is it's it, it would not fit the typical stereotype of the attacker taking their chances and just running as opposed to sticking around and maybe getting caught with the body or caught with more evidence. What was some of the evidence that was found at the body? recovery site you know we basically skipped over it because there's so little there's either so little or so much depending on how you look at it <laughs> so they found you know they found things like like bullet casings they found which you know sometimes the number of times i've been talking to an officer about a shooting and they're like yeah the first thing we have to do is sort out the bullet casings from this shooting from the bullet casings that were left over from the last shooting and figure out which ones go with this one and which ones go with some other shooting that we didn't investigate. So there are things like that. There were things like discarded whiskey bottles. I mean, one advantage to taking someone to a place like Leakin Park is the, the potential evidence of, of who it was isn't necessarily going to stand out from the evidence that's just there because it's the kind of place that all kinds of people hang out and do various things. And I think you see that when you go through sort of the evidence list, not a lot of it ended up being all that significant. You also have to remember that she was she was there for about a month. So when you when you read Jay's statement, he talks about, for instance, Adnan throwing up. That he's he's throwing up, you know, around sort of the burial of the body. And we had some people ask, well, did they, you know, did they find that? Did they test that? It's like it was a month later. You know, there, there's, it's not going to be left. So the thing about the case that I think trips a lot of people up, there's not a lot of physical evidence. As you pointed out, the fingerprints, they're interesting. There's some interesting fingerprints in this case, but it's easy to say Adnan was in her car a lot. And I'll give you a couple examples. There is a map book 
the map book, according to people who knew Hay, stayed in her driver's side pocket. That's not where the police found it. They found it in the back seat. They found it open. It had Adnan's fingerprints on it. And there was a page torn out of it, which was a page that included the map of Lincoln Park. Sitting on that map book was a rose wrapped in floral paper. On that floral paper were Adnan's fingerprints. So those are some fingerprints that are interesting. But, and, and they, were, they were striking to me. And it really stood out to me. And it, it painted a picture for me of what I think happened on that day. But it's also not unusual that his fingerprints would be in the car since he had been in the car many times before. Well, I'm trying to behave myself as, as much as I can here in the garage today. Uh, Nick should give me an actual cookie for that. But, okay, so there's all this evidence that you say points to Adnan's guilt. Then why would the prosecution, the prosecution, the state, not the defense team, the prosecutors, why would they release this killer, quote-unquote, why would they release this killer and give him back his freedom? <laughs> well, it's a it's a tangled web. <laughs> it, it's okay. So if you go all the way back to the original trial, according to Adnan, he wanted to plead guilty in the first trial, and his attorney, according to him, went to the prosecution, and the prosecution wasn't interested in giving him a deal. First trial ends in a mistrial. Adnan wants to plead guilty again. Once again, the prosecution's not interested in giving him a deal. He goes to trial. He's convicted. All of his sort of appeals are exhausted. Cyril comes along, brings a ton of attention to this case. I mean, makes it maybe the most famous true crime case in the world. You start getting a lot of new money comes in, a lot of new lawyers are looking at new things, a couple things that come up. Whether or not Christiana Gutierrez, who was his attorney, was ineffective for not following up on Asia McLean, who we haven't even talked about, but Asia McLean wrote a couple letters that said, I saw Adnan Syed at the library around the time that the prosecution had said, hey, had already been murdered. And so the argument was, if he's at the library, he couldn't have killed her. The prosecution's theory must be wrong. Therefore, he's innocent. There's a slight problem with that. Even if the prosecution's theory is wrong, Asia left the library shortly thereafter, so he still could have done it. It just means not when the prosecution initially said so. But anyways, you know, good argument. And there was also an argument about the cell phone data. So as we've talked about, there are outgoing calls and incoming calls. Everybody agrees the outgoing calls are, are good for location. There's a huge debate over incoming calls. Gutierrez never brought that up at trial. And so there was an argument that she was ineffective for that. She should have brought that up. And those two issues, there's, there's much later something called post-conviction review, which can happen if there's new evidence that comes to light, things that you didn't know about before. Initially, the, the judge who heard the case says, yeah, you know, I think she was ineffective. She should have talked to Asia. She should have questioned this cell phone data more. New trial. It gets appealed, and eventually that ruling gets overturned. No new trial. Goes away. So at that point, Maryland passes a couple laws. One of them says that if someone is under 18 at the time they commit a murder and they get a life sentence, that sentence can be re reconsidered. This, is a, this follows along with a lot of Supreme Court precedent that's really questioning whether or not people under the age of 18 should get life without parole or the death penalty. It's the same sort of thing. So Maryland passes a law, and they create like a unit to look at that. At the same time, the Baltimore police and like their drug testing unit gets in a bunch of trouble. I think it's them. Forgive me if I'm wrong. They <laughs> gets in a lot of trouble, and it turns out they were doing a really poor job with their drug testing. So Maryland passes a law that says, hey, if it's patently clear that somebody, you know, was innocent or, or, or there was major corruption in their case, you can vacate their conviction. So they start looking at Adnan's case as an example of this under 18 thing. Like, are we going to, are we going to give him sort of an opportunity to be let out of prison because he was under 18? At the time, a woman named Marilyn Mosby is the state attorney for Baltimore. She is also at the time under indictment for some accused, obviously innocent until proven guilty, accused of some sort of fraud involving COVID relief funds. I don't even really understand it all. She loses her reelection and she is getting ready to go to trial. And around that same time, the person who's looking at the case for whether or not he should be released because he was under 18 starts advocating for vacating the conviction altogether. At some point, they decide to do that. They put together a, a motion to vacate it and, and the whole thing goes haywire. They do. They they file the thing. They call 
Hayes family and basically tell them, hey, look, we know for 20 years we've been telling you it was Adnan Syed, but now we're going to change our mind and say he's not guilty. His case will be vacated on Monday, essentially. They ask for a week. They say, hey, can you give us a week so we can get out there and appear in person and speak to the court about this and about our sister and our daughter? Right. They say no. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, don't they have to say, here's the evidence against him, but this is why we, they have to explain away that evidence. They have to explain to the, to the victims and explain to the public why we're releasing this quote unquote killer. And the victim has a right to speak. The victim has a right to appear in court and speak on behalf of their, their relative. It's a victim's rights act. And a lot of states have them and they're very important. But they basically say, no, we're not going to let you do that. Her brother lives in California. And instead, they send him a Zoom link 30 minutes before the thing starts. He reads a prepared statement, which if you haven't heard it, is just heartbreaking. His prepared statement is heartbreaking. He reads it. They thank him. They release Adnan. Yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it's very confusing because they also don't explain anything to the victims or to the public. Correct. There's no evidentiary hearing. There's no opportunity to present testimony. There's no opportunity for the people who are accused of misconduct, including the prosecutor in the case and one of the detectives, to address that. They use some notes the prosecutor wrote, which they interpret to mean one thing, which he has since said they don't mean that. There are so many irregularities in this that you just don't see happen, even in cases that end in an exoneration. Think back to the Michael Peterson case. So the Michael Peterson case, he gets convicted. Dwayne Devers turns out, is just completely incompetent. Well, they didn't just release Michael Peterson. They had an evidentiary hearing where they had testimony. They you know, presented their arguments. And then the judge said, based on the arguments and the testimony, I'm vacating the conviction and I'm releasing Mr. Peterson. And then later on, they entered into a plea. And well, in this case, none of that happened. You're 100% right. And they just, in really, I mean, in a whirlwind, they vacate the conviction. Marilyn Mosby goes out and declares that Adnan Syed is innocent. A couple weeks later, they get back the DNA results from Hayes' shoes that are inconclusive. I mean, it's the best thing you can describe them. There's an unknown touch DNA on her shoes that aren't Adnan's. And for some reason, that means it wasn't him. So they drop the charges. Well, at that point, the brother, Young Lee, challenges this, goes up to the Maryland Court of Appeals. Maryland Court of Appeals reverses all of that and says the whole thing was was improper. He didn't give, he has an absolute right to appear. He didn't give him that right to appear. We're reversing the dismissal of the indictment. We're reversing the vacation of the conviction. But we're staying that for 60 days if you want to appeal to the Supreme Court. They ask the Court of Appeals to reconsider. They deny it. They've appealed it to the Maryland Supreme Court and where the case currently stands is the Maryland Supreme Court has continued that stay of the action of the of the Court of Appeals while it gets the briefing and hears the arguments. And at some point, the Maryland Court of Appeals will decide whether or not to agree with what, or excuse me, the Maryland Supreme Court will decide whether or not to agree with what the Court of Appeals said or to reverse them. If they reverse them, Adnan will go free and will be free. If they uphold what they did, then we'll be back, it will be back where he's a convicted murderer. And they'll have to decide what to do going forward from that. And I'll just say to people out there, if you're interested in this case, read the Maryland Court of Appeals opinion and in particular, read the footnotes because the footnotes just destroy the motion to vacate. The actual opinion is all about victims' rights and how that was violated. But then in the footnotes, that's where the action is. So read the footnotes and you'll see the, all the problems, some of which you've, re- you've laid out with why this was, was improper. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. 
or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code True Crime Garage 50 at factormeals.com slash True Crime Garage 50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Well, it's also, I think, really irresponsible because if I'm Heyman Lee's brother and I believe that Adnan Syed killed my sister, strangled her, and they did not give me the evidence to to understand why they're letting a, a murderer out, you better get security for that guy because I'm coming after him. I just think it's very irresponsible. Not just believe that this guy killed your sister, but being told by the state for 20 years that this guy killed your sister right. and then offered no no other explanation as to, oh, well, we, we've, we've changed our minds. Now, Alice, maybe you can help me out with this here. What is a Brady violation and was there one in this case. Sure. So a Brady violation comes from the Supreme Court um, stating in the case Maryland versus Brady that if the prosecution, the prosecution has to turn over, has has very stringent discovery um, obligations as it should because it's the investigative body and it, the, the evidence is in its hands. It has to turn over all evidence, but not just evidence um, that the person they've arrested is um, guilty of the crime. They also have to turn over any evidence that could potentially be used um, by the defense to argue their side of the story. So in other words, the prosecution doesn't get to pick and choose what type of evidence gets turned over to the defense. They have to turn over everything, including um, evidence that could be helpful to the defense. Um, and, it, you know, that is a very, very serious obligation. Um, in fact, most um, most prosecutors will go above and beyond their discovery obligations just so that they don't even come close to any sort of a Brady violation. They, uh, you know, it's not quite open files, but they will go above and beyond their discovery obligations because what you want to happen in the court of law is you want justice to be done. You want the proper cross-examination to be done because you want ultimately the truth to come out in the day. You know, a lot of people can say that the prosecution, all they want to do is to get another W on the board. Just win. Whoever they've arrested, they want to make sure that they get them convicted. I mean, having having practiced in this field, that is the worst, the, I would say most prosecutors' worst nightmare is to be on the side of having um, uh, be in violation of any sort of discovery obligation, but even worse, putting someone who is innocent of the crime in prison. That is truly, I mean, wakes me up at night and makes makes me make sure that I go above and beyond all of my obligations to make sure that I am not um, a player uh, in that sort of a situation. And so with respect to whether a Brady violation has happened in this case, no, no, a Brady violation has not happened in this case. Because remember, just because evidence is turned over to the other side, there are ultimately strategy calls for any sort of attorney, defense or prosecution as to what your story is going to be out there. We've already talked about the problems with witnesses who may have um, credibility issues or even stories that may not be backed up by the evidence. And so when evidence is turned over to the defense, the defense doesn't just wholesale throw everything at the board. They have to take into account what story is going to be believable in general, believable to a jury, and also what can feed into their their narrative of what's going to happen. And so if a defense attorney gets information about a case and they ultimately choose as part of their strategy not to present it as part of the defense, that in itself is not necessarily ineffective assistance of counsel. That in and of itself is not necessarily the defense attorney falling down on the job. And shifting to information that could or could not be Brady violation, just because a piece of evidence could look good for the defense doesn't necessarily mean it rises to the level of a Brady, uh, of being Brady material. You know, the, the courts have said oftentimes it has to be materially um, uh 
uh, it has to materially affect the case because there is always going to be this incredible amount of information that you can argue should have been in or not. But a lot of that information, as we've talked about in Adnan's case, is going to be ancillary to the actual charges brought here. You know, an investigative file is you have to draw a boundary somewhere. Otherwise, you know, the, the amount of information that could come up, that could come in is not helpful, is duplicative, and could also just merely be confusing um, if they have nothing to do with the case here. Yeah. And I think when you think about this, not every discovery violation is a Brady violation. And I think that's what confuses people. I think there's this notion that the prosecution has to give the defense everything. Well, that's not true. You don't actually have to give the defense everything. But even if you didn't give them something you should have, that doesn't mean it's a Brady violation. You also have to prove that had you given it to them, it would have had an effect and usually a pretty big one on the case. And a lot of times if the evidence is overwhelming anyway, it won't even matter. And I think people miss all those little nuances. And, and to me, it was wild that the prosecution or the state in this case included possible Brady violations as, as a reason to vacate this conviction. And the, the attorney general of Maryland even came out and said, none of, none of this is a Brady violation. And it wasn't. And honestly, and this goes back, we talked about this on, we have another podcast called Legal Briefs where we talked about this. This should have been argued in a court of law. There should have been argument about this with two sides debating it and putting on evidence and, and putting people on the stand and making them answer for the things they'd done. And that should have been done not only for Hay and not only for Adnan, but because the justice system is about the public too. And it's about ensuring that the public has faith that whatever you're doing is the right thing. And they did this essentially in the dead of the night behind closed doors without any presentation of evidence. And it, it bothered us then. And when we looked into the case and we realized how strong the case was, it bothered us even more. But this is not, this is not a case where he might be guilty, but his constitutional rights were violated so egregiously he should be out. That did not happen in this case. Well, one thing that I learned is that there's the, the two trials, the first trial and the second trial, and that at both trials that Adon wanted to plead guilty. To me, that seems like somebody wanting to either just make a deal to save themselves or possibly wanting to confess uh, because some people do feel guilty, and if he did love her and he did kill her, he he might feel bad about that and want to show remorse for it. Do you think? Do you have a thought process on on if he is guilty uh, on why he never has confessed to the crimes? Well, at this point, I I don't think he can. I mean, like you said, I don't live in Adnan's head, but at this point, yeah, I mean, just imagine, imagine you were in his circumstances where the entire world is divided over whether or not you're innocent or guilty. You have people who've invested everything in proving your innocence. And I, I, and I don't think this is the only case you see this in. You know, we, talk about, we talked about the Jeffrey McDonald case way back when. And I don't know how you guys, I don't remember what you guys said about that case, but I feel like you're on the same page as we are. You know, Jeffrey McDonald, yeah. Jeffrey is guilty. Jeffrey McDonald, you know, he killed his family. He's so obviously guilty. And yet, to this day, he won't admit it. And you have people who will make that argument. If he just admitted it, he could get parole, but he won't admit it. That must mean he's innocent. And 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 like I said, I'm not in his mind and I'm not a psychologist, but I think that ignores some pretty strong psychology when you think that's true. I think it was much easier for Adnan when he's, you know, 18 and being charged with murder and the trial's about to happen to plead guilty at that point, get a, you know, a whatever sentence he would get and move on with his life. Now his entire being is wrapped up in being wrongfully convicted. Well, and that's what he wanted. That's what he would have wanted 20 years ago, right? For a room divided, which he, he didn't get. And I mean, that's what a defense attorney wants to get to a room divided because then, then they're not convicting your guy. And now he has a room divided. And I'm the one that brought up psychology, so I kind of circle back around to that, too. I think there's some weird psychology about the whole serial presentation as well. And I don't think it's intentional on their behalf. I think it's just human nature. So, you know, they're, they're journalists. They're telling a story. But right out the gate, just like they would in a sit-down meeting with, with their editor or with their boss – 
right out the gate in serial, they're saying, you know, why are we doing this story? Why are we covering this story? Well, we're covering it because there's someone who tells us that their loved one has been wrongfully convicted or didn't get a fair trial. And he's been in prison all these years for a murder that he didn't commit. That's why we are doing the story. And so I think it's human nature when you're tuning in right out the gate, that seed has been planted in your brain. And as you continue to listen and as you continue to invest your time in listening to this story, that seed has already been planted that, well, they're doing the story because he's innocent, wrongfully convicted. And, um, I'm, I'm now continuing to listen and giving that more weight and credibility on some weird psychology, human nature level, because that, that seed has been planted a long time ago. Look, I think group, group dynamics happen all the time. They happen in courtrooms too. They happen with juries. You have 12 people, you get into a jury room. I've never served on a jury. I wish I could. But you can imagine if you take that first vote and 11 people say guilty and you're the only one saying innocent, you know, maybe you spend the whole time trying to prove everybody else wrong. Or maybe you start to reconsider, you know, why these people that you've spent some time with and gotten to know and all seem like normal, rational people think the person's guilty. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually one of the ways it's supposed to work. It's supposed to make you question your own sort of preconceived notions. But I think when it comes to podcasts, and I think it's important to remember this, we try to remember it. It's, it's hard to do. There is, there is always going to be a strong group dynamic of we all want to be in this together. You know, we all want to be cheering for the right side. And I think you saw that with Serial. It very effectively made you want to cheer for Adnan. And maybe by the end, you weren't cheering for him anymore. And you'd sort of go on your own way. But very much. There weren't that many people who listened to Serial and were like, I have no idea. There weren't that many people. It was either you strongly felt like he was guilty or you strongly felt like he was innocent. And Serial very effectively did that. And it's really hard to get out of, of that kind of group mentality. And, and that psychology, I think, is absolutely there. Well, and for me, I, I know a lot of people were really infatuated with this case and, and really have stuck with it and followed it since the first time they listened to serial. I did not, I, I very much enjoyed the podcast, but I kind of moved on this. There's other cases that piqued my interest and Oh, by the way, we're kind of doing a show about a new case every week too. So I had other things to, to focus in on, but your, your guys's podcast for me brought to light some things and brought up some new things for me that I was unaware of that, that are central to this case. And one was the anonymous phone call. That was something I don't recall ever having any knowledge of. Uh, the other thing, and I can't, I can't let you go until we talk about this a little bit and, and bring everybody up to speed as, as much as you know, right? Because it sounds like this is a bit of a shadowy figure here, but who is Bilal Amid? or Bilal Ahmed. I think I'm trying to say that as best I can. I'll let Alice take this one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know this is where you were going, Nick. <laughs> of all the things in this case that you could have uh, uh, asked about, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I knew what you were going to ask here. So Bilal is this interesting, like you said, shadowy figure that kind of is part of this case, but not much is really discussed about him and not really that much is known about him. Basically, we know that uh, we know more about him now than we did at the time um, that all of this was happening with um, Heyman Lee's investigation. But Bilal is someone that was like an older figure within the mosque who knew Adnan. Um, And interestingly enough, we know that Adnan's parents uh, didn't have a cell phone for him, whether he was not allowed to or what have you. He didn't have a cell phone that was paid for by his parents. But we know that Bilal uh, basically opened up a cell phone account under his own name for Adnan. And that's the cell phone we've been talking about here, the one that he left with Jay, um, all the cell phone pings we're talking about. That cell phone bill is actually opened under Bilal's name. And apparently he had opened this phone account up for Adnan the day, before. The day before Brett. I think the day before, the day before that um, Hay goes missing. And so 
of course, he's going to be an interesting figure here because the cell phone is, you know, activated essentially right before Hay is, uh, Hay disappears and is murdered. And also, like, who is he? Why is he getting a cell phone for Adnan, who is a teenager at this time? Uh, Bilal is an older man. And then, you know, fast forward many years, Bilal has since been um, in trouble with the law himself with um, kind of sexual improprieties with, um, with, uh, w- with minors as well. Yeah, it minors? was minor boys. And he was, uh, I mean, he was a dentist. So he was taking advantage of, of boys, basically, who he would give them nitrous oxide and then sexually abuse them. So he's obviously, uh, you know, he hasn't kept his nose clean. And those are some very serious allegations that have been brought against him. Um, but you don't see him discuss that much. We talk about him a bit, but he's an interesting figure just because of um, his relationship with Adnan in that he provided the cell phone that is central to a lot of the evidence that we've been discussing. The problem with him is he's like case. a black hole. If you if you get near him, he will you get it's not a rabbit hole, it's a black hole and you get sucked into it and you can never get out because he's obviously he is such a shady individual. He is a criminal. He is a sexual predator of young boys. Yet he's also friends with Adnan. He's opening up this cell phone for him. There are a lot of people who go a lot of different ways with him, but the problem is you can, you can speculate, well, maybe he did it. Maybe, you know, and we mentioned this in one of our episodes, you know, maybe he abused Adnan and Hay found out about it. And so he had to kill her to silence her. Okay. I mean, that's a great screenplay, but there's literally no evidence of that whatsoever. You know, we have Hay's diary and she wasn't shy about writing in it. Doesn't say anything like that. You know, you've got maybe, Bilal did it for other reasons. Maybe he was doing it for, for Adnan. And so, you know, but once again, other than Bilal sort of being a bad guy, there's just no real evidence of it. And we, we talked about him, but we tried to just talk about him in general because we didn't want to get sucked into that, to that, to that black hole. I mean, this case is one of those cases and you guys see him too. And y'all do an amazing job. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how y'all keep your series so short because you know, we talked about this one for 14 episodes and could have done more. <laughs> but if you were doing an entire show on the Adnan side case, you probably could talk a lot about Bilal. We tried to avoid that. Which I think was smart because, like you said, it's it's a black hole. It's not, I don't even think it's, I brought him up because I wanted to point out that once again that that you are bringing something new to the table for for some of the people with their understanding of this case. And so I, I really only brought him up for that reason. But like you said, he's a black hole because th- then then the problem, if you if you want to go and make the giant leap that the Adnan didn't do this or that Jay didn't do it or the two didn't do it together, for it to be anybody else, then you have to also believe that Jay, for whatever weird, inconceivable reason, would lie to police saying he helped bury a body when he didn't and, and, and face severe criminal charges off of that statement. It, it, when you talk about rhyme or reason, we don't have either with, with that idea that, that somebody else could have done it. And then, Oh, by the way, this guy also admitted to burying a body that he had nothing to do. With. And I think that's such an important point. And it goes back to what you said about there are three real possibilities here. You can never, forget the giant conspiracy theory that you have to buy into hanging over here where the Baltimore police are somehow a bunch of bumbling idiots, frankly, you know, because we all know the Baltimore police do a lot of really stupid things, but also have managed to build this amazing conspiracy that involved Jay and Jen for no reason. Jay and Jen, they're not covering for themselves. They're just framing Adnan because they were forced to do so. And that's why whenever you, you know, Bilal, you might be like, man, I don't know. Bilal seems good. Or Alonzo Sellers, that guy, you know, he's, he, he could have done something like this or, you know, Don's the current boyfriend. Maybe it was him, but that, that hangs there just over you the whole time. And for me, it's the reason that, you know, we talk about the difference between reasonable doubt and any doubt. That's something that's important in the court system. And when I look at this case, it, it, it is just, I feel it so much. Because there are times where I'm sitting around and I'm like, well, you know, I mean, 
I guess something could have happened. Maybe something happened so that Adnan didn't do this. It's hard for me to figure out what it is, but maybe, maybe, you know? And then I'm like, but no, that that actually is completely unreasonable because of all the things that would have to be true for that to 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 be a fact. And I think you're 100% right. You just keep coming back to that. It can't, it just, it can't be the case that Jay is not involved in this at all. It just can't be the case. And for it to be any of those other people, that's what you'd have to believe. Well, I think people put so much weight on whether Jay Wilds is lying or not. And we know he's a liar, but does that mean he's lying about everything? But the wrench in this becomes Jen because she doesn't seem like she's a liar. And, and somehow she knows this story before Jay even tells this to the cops before there's a deal made. She does. And people forget about her and they forget about her a lot or they ignore her. And I think there's a reason for that. If you go back and you read her statement that she gave before, before Jay gets picked up, it is to me, one of the most believable statements that you can read. It just reads like it's true. And people point out, well, yeah, but it's all hearsay. She didn't see anything. She just heard it from Jay. That's true, but that means Jay told her the story first, before the police got to him, before the police could have fed him any, any information. She's walking into a police station with her lawyer and her mother, sitting down and telling the basic story. In fact, telling them some details that Jay doesn't even offer in his first statement. Like the fact that it happened at the Best Buy, Jay told Jen that. Jay in his first story doesn't tell the police that, which I've always thought was interesting. You know, if the police were feeding this story to them, why isn't that consistent? That's a pretty important detail, but it's not. And yeah, you just, Jen, Jen is just a glaring red flag if you want to try and get around Jay. This case is uh, pretty uh, emotional for me. I was in school at the same time as these characters in this, you know, it's almost like a tragic opera, but I feel like we always forget about Heyman Lee and how special of an individual she was and and how she's the real victim in this and she's always going to be the real victim in this tragic play and maybe the prosecution will come out and tell us why they let him free and how that makes sense in all of this and what evidence they found and what suspects and maybe they can actually make an arrest and bring some justice to Heyman Lee. But what do you guys think is next in this saga? So I think, as we often talk about on the show, the farther you get from the trial court, the less the facts of the case matter. When you're moving up the appeals court, the more and more the court is concerned about the precedent that it's setting. And I think, and this is my opinion, I think the vacation of Adnan's conviction was a fraud on the court. I think it is an absolute injustice. I think it was done improperly whether he's innocent or not. And I think it was a violation of everything we hold dear in the justice system. And it should be overturned. Even if they go back to court and they do it right this time, and they do it in the open, and they have the evidence presented, and they reach the exact same conclusion, I think that's what should happen. The Court of Appeals, what's weird about this case is because the state did what it did, the person to attack the conviction is kind of missing, or the, the vacation is kind of missing. Ordinarily, it'd be the state. They'd file an appeal. Everything would be very normal in an ordinary course. But in this case, you had the victim, the victim's brother, who has to stand in for Hay and has to speak for her. And if there is one hero in the story, it's young Lee, who to this day has not stopped fighting for his sister, despite immense pressure to do so. He steps in and challenges this on the basis of victims' rights. And unfortunately, in this country, and, and, and you know it's this way for a lot of really good, important reasons, people who are accused of crimes have all kinds of rights. People who are victims of crimes often don't. And the states have tried to remedy that by passing laws, but a lot of times they don't have teeth. And Young Lee, using one of those laws, has challenged this. The Court of Appeals, I think they looked at this case, and like I said, if you read those footnotes, you see it they saw a massive injustice and they undid everything that had been done up to this point. The Supreme Court of Maryland, when they think about this though, they have to consider all the other cases. You know, they have to consider things like standing, which nobody wants us to get into because it's so boring. 
They have to consider how broad the victim's rights statute should be. And I kind of wonder if they wash their hands of the case is not quite right, but basically say the standing doctrine and the victim's right doctrine is not broad enough to do this, to overturn this vacation. This, this just not the way you can do it. And I kind of feel like that's the way they're going to go. Cause I think they're going to be thinking about the law sort of writ large and not the individual case. So at the end of the day, I think it's likely that his conviction, which has been reinstated, but that reinstatement has been put on hold that the court of appeals opinion ends up not going into effect and he'll be a free man. Yeah. It's uh again, it's all sad because it, we tend to forget about him and Lee and, and if Adnan is truly innocent, then you're, you are out now and you have power to bring pressure onto the prosecution to find the real killer if you are not the killer. And we see this in other cases where people say, once I get out free, I'm going to work to get justice for the victims. And they seem to never do that. It's, a, it's very depressing. Uh, all all of this. I'm just so depressed about what Brett said. I don't know if I can add more to that. <laughs> um, I, I think what's important that Brett said right there is we, this should have gone about the proper way. And it absolutely was not done the proper way. Even if the, they went back to the district court and um, moved for vacation through an evidentiary hearing and it came out the exact same way, I would be okay with that because the proper procedures were followed. And we care about procedures because this is not the only criminal case. Right. This is if this is a uh, wrongful conviction, this hopefully, you know, there are not many wrongful convictions, but we want to make avenues for the overturning of wrongful convictions and procedure matters because that is the route in which we can seek justice in the court systems, no matter your facts and no matter who you are. And what has happened in Adnan's case, I think, threatens that because it makes it it makes the judiciary system uh, a laughable uh, completely laughable to others who are looking at the judiciary, especially if they are not on the inside and don't know how the judiciary system works. I am afraid that Brett's premonition of what's going to happen at the Maryland Supreme Court will come to fruition, but I hope it is not true. So, you know, we will we will keep our eyes open for what happens next, but we absolutely do know that what happened in the first instance in, in terms of his vacation at the district court did not follow the proper procedures. I want to applaud you guys for having an intelligent conversation about this case. We might not agree on every little detail, but it's important that we hear all sides. And it's important for Heyman Lee, again, the the true victim in all this. And so what, one of the things I, I really loved about your guys' coverage is you said, hey, don't take our word for all this. There's other sources that you should check out. Can you just tell the audience uh, some of those sources that you believe they, they should go check out if they're interested in diving more into the case of Heyman Lee? Well, I, I just want to say, you know, I listened to Serial again, and Nick, you're 100% right. When you listen to it, it takes you back to a place in time. When you hear that that music, <laughs> the Serial theme song, you know, you're, just, you're right back in 2013, 2014, whenever exactly that was that it came out. I think it's worth it to listen to Serial. Look, a lot has changed in Serial. A lot has come out since Serial. But Serial, it was it was good. I mean, it was really good. And it was really entertaining. And in some ways, a lot of you out there who, who listen to True Crime a lot now, if you listen to Serial, you'll also see a lot of the flaws. And you'll see the little tricks. And you'll see the places where things are sort of obfuscated to keep the mystery going. But I do think you should listen to Serial. And then two of the big programs that I think have done the most for laying out the case for Adnan's innocence. Uh, the one that's indispensable is Undisclosed, Undisclosed, which is three lawyers, including Robbie Chaudhry. That, that is sort of the, I think, the gold standard for if you want to hear the arguments for how Adnan said it's innocent, you should listen to that. The other one, Bob Ruff, who always puts on a good show. Truth and Justice, his very first season was called The Serial Dynasty, and it was happening basically parallel with Undisclosed. So you hear a lot of sort of a lot of he's talking about Undisclosed a lot. He's talking to some of the people in Undisclosed. And so it's interesting to hear sort of both their perspectives on the episodes as they come out. Those are great to listen to. But I think if you are really fascinated about this and you spent a lot of time with this case. The case file is big, but it's not as big as some and it's out there and you can read it. 
We've put a lot of it on our website. There are a lot of websites that have the information on there. Read the trial transcript. Read the interview transcripts with Jen and and with Jay. You know, read through it for yourself. You guys, you're all, you know, you're all qualified to be jurors. You're all smart enough to decide whether or not somebody's guilty or innocent based on the evidence. The evidence is there. Go go look at it for yourself. Don't let anybody tell you what to think. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? Now, Captain, I know that we have recommended this one before, but it's a great read. And the story shares some unfortunate similarities with the Heyman Lee case. So this week we are recommending Little Crazy Children by longtime friend of the show, James Renner. In this true crime story, a young high school couple... The girl in this case is Lisa Pruitt. She's just 16 when she is stabbed to death in the affluent neighborhood of Shaker Heights. Lisa had snuck out to go over to her boyfriend's house. She is found outside by police after calls alerting the police to screams heard in the neighborhood. Now, did her boyfriend kill her or did someone intercept her late that night? You'll want to check out Little Crazy Children, a true crime tragedy by James Renner. You can find that great title and many more recommendations on our recommended page, truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com.